0: Welcome to the Weekly Multifamily Roundtable, where each week we set out to learn something new about multifamily investing. Whether you're new to apartment investing or looking to take your real estate career to the next level, you are in the right place.
1: Are ready to go. We can always trim this after the fact. All right. Welcome to the weekly multifamily round table. We are a group of multifamily investors from Minnesota that get together to, to get together every week uh, to talk about multifamily real estate investing. We thought, hey, why don't we invite you, the listener at home, into these conversations to learn a little bit of something? Like we come together to try and learn something from each other, and you might as well benefit from that as well. So I am Anthony Vecino of Invictus Capital. Dan Krueger is my partner. Rodney is another syndicator here from uh, the Minnesota area. And tonight we're going to be talking from a really high level, just what is multifamily investing? What's an apartment syndication? We're going to treat this as though you are brand new to real estate investing. You don't know anything. And we're going we're gonna to take you in the next three sessions over the next three weeks. And we're going to take you from being a complete newbie to you know, actually understanding what we're talking about, how you might take part in this industry, and then you hopefully start feeling confident to to start taking some action. So, what do you guys think about that?
0: That sounds amazing. Sounds did like I, a plan. Did I nail that intro? You nailed you guys, the intro.
1: You guys at home, it, if I nailed that intro, uh,
0: thumbs up for for me. No. Yeah, drop a comment <laughs> just in, for him. in the chat. Letting Anthony know how awesome he is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've really been
1: struggling recently. You know, we're in COVID times, and so we're we're self quarantined. I don't get as much positive reinforcement anymore <laughs> as I'm used to getting. So, <laughs> so guys, let's let's talk about apartment syndication, multifamily investing. Uh, I think tonight's conversation, if we could lay the groundwork for what a syndication is, why we like it, what are the benefits, the pros and the cons. And then how people can actually start getting involved in that, I think we'll have uh, done a good
0: thing for the world. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. So, where do you want to start? Like, why we should invest? Or, well, well, let's first let's assume
1: somebody coming off the street right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and play the idiot. Uh, that's gonna be pretty easy here tonight. I'm gonna play the idiot. I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend like I'm the new guy who doesn't know anything, and I'll ask questions. So if you guys start using lingo, you you're gonna you know I'm gonna throw my hand up. So but so first the very first thing is what's multifamily? I know that seems really
2: like really easy cuz we're in it, but what what is that? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because half the time when I'm talking to people who aren't really aware of what this business is and I say I invest in multifamily, they're like, "Oh, like duplexes and triplexes?" That's a very common like first thing people say. So, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to define what the heck we're talking about here, which is multifamily meaning larger apartment buildings. Big stuff, not a duplex, a triplex, or, or a quad. So,
0: yeah, technically big. it it starts at what five units, yeah, um, and and goes up from there. But but yeah, we we like to dabble in the in the higher numbers.
1: And why does it start at five? I, I, I it's it's hard because there, I don't feel
2: like there is a really set definition
1: necessarily. It's kind of a there moving is target. when
2: you're talking about appraisals and lending. Sure. I mean, that's that's the way I look at it is, you know, when, when you're getting a commercial loan on something, it's they call it commercial when it's five or more. And yep. the same with appraisals. When you're getting appraisals done, if it's got five or more units, they start to look at income. Whereas if you have a, a duplex or a triplex, the income is, uh, from what I understand, not really factored in. It's mm-hmm. pretty much just comps.
0: And yeah i think that's pretty much where the definition comes from as a lending institution more than it does from let's you know our sector per se mm-hmm.
1: yeah i guess uh, for me from the lending perspective always i've always heard residential and commercial residential being a uh, single family all the way up to a quad and then at five units and above now we're talking about commercial loans but i've never necessarily heard the
2: lenders specifying and saying that's multi-family or like not multi-family so
0: that's for me. Well,
2: yeah, I think that's part of it. When I talk to brokers and like, not like larger multifamily brokers, but just sort of like people in real estate in general, mm-hmm. when I say the word multifamily, a lot of them default to duplexes. So I think a lot exactly. of those people, when they hear multifamily, they're like anything that's more than just one unit, one house, You know, if there's more than one uh, occupant, basically, mm-hmm. that automatically goes into multifamily, which is true. I mean, yep. yeah, literally it's multiple. To say families, the least, it's so. kind
0: of a fluid term, I would say. Mm-hmm
1: yeah and that's what i'm trying to get at here is that it is it is a little bit fluid but for the context of this conversation and the type of investing that we do we're talking about commercial uh properties that are five units or larger for rodney you have a couple hundred unit complexes right yeah uh, and then dan and i we our largest is 32 so it, you know there's a range there
2: So yeah, multifamily. I think we've got that defined. People should understand what the heck we're talking about from here on out if we use the word multifamily. Now the elephant in the room right, is what the heck is a syndication? I think that one, uh, especially to a lot of new investors, that's an intimidating term. um, Because up until I got into this business, um, the only time I heard about uh, the only time I remember hearing that that term used was like syndicated TV shows, like something goes into syndication. Mm-hmm. Like that, I'd never heard of it in in um, reference to real estate up until, you know, recent years. So I think it's kind of a newer thing. And it's, it's probably not on a lot of people's radar unless they're out there looking for it. So, so what the heck is it?
0: Yeah. And the syndicate is really just where people pool their money. So mm-hmm. Uh, you have a collective of multiple entities uh, because typically investors come together as as entities and pool their money to buy an asset. And um, so that's where the, the term syndication comes from.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually, Rodney, can you give me screen share ability? I'm going to share an infographic here. We can kind of walk through it. Um, that we designed just ex- laying out what is the syndication, who are the individual players in it, so we can kind of talk through what the pros and the cons are as well.
0: Uh, let's see. I thought that you should be able to screen share. It says, host disabled
1: participant screen sharing. Oh. You've put the child locks on me. I've been child locked. I love that.
2: trust you. <laughs> I mean, uh, rightfully so. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what you're going to throw up on that screen. So <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. either. Oh,
1: so, yeah, normally just
0: normally on the, the list out here, it says that, uh, you know, to allow share, but
2: can you do like an interpretive dance of what the infographic is? Just to... try,
0: try that now. Ooh. I just said multiple people can share. There we go. All right. All righty, here we go. Uh, so the other thing that that um, we should mention somewhere along in here is uh, JV, because that's that's another type of uh, a collective purchase of a, of a real estate. Now, that's not what we do here, but in case people have questions about, um, well, I heard, you know, this the term JV, uh, you know, and that's a joint venture, which is different than a syndication.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, yep, yeah, and we can get into the nuances of the two after we lay the groundwork here for the syndication because it'll kind of I think that it'll make a lot of sense once we go through this. but can you guys see the screen? Am I dominating everything? You are dominating everything. okay, so can you see my mouse too? if I yes gesture gesticulate wildly here?
2: Okay, so what's like this graphic is so good we don't even need to be here.
1: okay, everybody just sit silently. We're going to just have a moment of silence. You just digest this. Okay. So the the syndication is like you guys have already mentioned, there's a lot of ways to syndicate. You could syndicate a candy bar. You could syndicate a boat. You could do, you could syndicate a racehorse, a spaceship, whatever, like sky's. You could do it. You could do an alpaca. Yes. Yeah. You can, you can syndicate pretty much anything. The idea is that a group of investors are going to pool their resources and the resources being time, knowledge, money to buy something, In this case, we're buying a large asset that we're going to split the profits. And the reason that we do that is because on our own, we might not be able to go out and buy a hundred unit apartment complex, right? When we're talking about these properties that cost millions of dollars, one single investor might not be able to go and get it. But there's a lot of benefits to multifamily investing that we'll talk about in later episodes. But this is the, the groundwork. That's the syndication. Now there's two different entities within a syndication. You have your passive investors and you have your active investors. So let's let's real quick talk about the active side of things because that's close to home for all of us because we're all active investors. Is this where we're supposed to say something, Dan? You have yep, something compelling and provocative <laughs> and insightful.
2: You want me to talk about what <laughs> What the active investors are and what they do. Okay. So, yeah, the the active investors, otherwise known as the general partners or the GP team, could be one person, it could be multiple people. Um, These are uh, basically the people that are taking the majority of the risk. They're doing uh, essentially all of the work. They're going out, they're finding the deal, they're uh, finding the lender, they're negotiating with the seller, they're finding all the investors and coordinating everything. And then uh, most of the time they're also either someone involved or entirely involved in the actual operations of the uh, uh, asset after it's purchased. Um, if you guys watched our, um, I think it was last week or maybe it was the week before when we talked to, um, oh geez, I forgot the name of this company. Um,
0: oh, Patrick Duffy with... Uh, S- Tactical Man. Assets.
2: Tactical. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes uh, uh, the general partners will outsource, you know, the asset management element to someone else. But, anyways, for the sake of simplicity, basically the general partners, the the active investors are the ones that are actually doing all the work, putting in all the time, and taking the majority of the risk. And then that leaves the, uh, the the limited partners or the passive investors.
0: Boom. General partner. Yeah. The general partners <laughs> put up put up the the loan application fees, pay for due diligence. Uh, all of the upfront money costs uh, are are the active and are the yes the active investors and uh, the ones that actually close the deal. Passive investors are the ones that uh, they are the ones that bring capital to the table. That uh, in addition to the active investors, so the active investors and the passive investors will pool their their money. The active investors are uh, the ones that actually pull the legwork into uh, making the syndication happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah one so-
2: other thing to note too is that, you know, usually the general partner on the deal, um, you know, this is their full-time job is putting together deals. Um, it's, you know, this is, this is their thing. This is their business. And typically the limited partners, the passive investors, the name implies it, you know, they're, they're investing money, but they have other stuff going on. They've got their own careers. They're not out there hunting for deals. They're not putting their time into this. So mm-hmm. the GP is really like, this is their, this is their thing. This is what they do.
1: Yeah. So every deal is going to need time. Oh God, that's white, really. Okay. It's going to mm-hmm. need time, knowledge, and money, right? And so the passive investors are bringing the money and the active investors by and large, they might bring some money as well to the table to put some skin in the game, but they're bringing the time and they're bringing the knowledge. And so here at this round table, we are all active investors. We're operators. We spend a lot of time networking with other industry professionals, the brokers, the lenders to make sure that we're getting deal flow and then that when we get the deals, we can bring everybody together and execute on the deal. And then once we have it, then we spend the time and the energy to run and manage the deals. And then we handle the exit. So we're doing all the work and we're providing the time and the knowledge necessary to to run a smooth operation. And then the passive investors, it's really simple. They just bring the money and then you sit back and you collect quarterly checks in the form of cash flow checks or you know, however it's going to be structured. And so uh, the passive investors, it's it's a great role if you love your job, you love what you do, you're not really interested in learning the ins and outs of real estate. Because as we talk about multifamily of the type that we do, there's a big difference between being a really good operator and being a really bad operator. If you're a really bad operator, you're gonna lose a ton of money. Um, it's gonna be problematic. And those are the type of people we like to buy our properties from. But if you're a really good operator, you can, the sky's the limit. You can, you can uh, realize great profits, but it's very different than small single family properties where, you know, you could go buy a couple of those and they put some property management in place and they kind of run themselves. It's not a big deal. You're not going to make a ton. You're not going to lose a ton probably.
2: So why wouldn't someone, let's say someone realizes that real estate's awesome. um, Why wouldn't they want to go and, you know, if you don't have to be that great, why wouldn't they go buy a house? a uh, single family a rental or maybe a duplex uh, as opposed to being a, a limited partner on a, a larger deal like this? Right. Am I jumping ahead or is this- No, like- no, that's a,
1: I mean, I think that's a great question because as we talk about multifamily and syndications, it is a logical question. Like, why don't I just go do this myself? Yeah. So Rodney, how do you handle that question? Uh, do you get that question ever as you're talking with potential new investors?
0: Hey, so I think once once a person understands- um, the large multifamily aspect of it, they understand that there's there are a lot of moving parts. <clears throat> and uh, I think this is where a lot of investors get in because they look at a single family house. It's something that they know, they live in one and there isn't as many moving parts. Uh, you can approach a real estate agent, you can get a loan for a house and you can start renting it. And uh, you know, you might have to fix a toilet, uh, you might have to deal with a tenant, or you can pay a management company to do that kind of thing and, and reduce your profits. Um, but I don't think that most people that I've run into have asked me that when it comes to buying a hundred plus unit apartment complex because they understand that there is a complexity there that, they're not really willing to deal with, and if they are, well, then they're then they're seeking other questions. You know, how do I get involved in something like this? And then we can steer them to programs that you know all three of us have, you know, participated in. And so, uh, yeah, I I don't really get that question that often, and and I think it has to you know a lot to do with who we're talking to, right? Because we're we're talking to investors that are already pretty savvy and they may not know all the ins and outs of a syndication, uh, but they understand that that there is a passive investor role. And, and that's exactly what they're interested in because they're, they're not interested in the day-to-day operations.
2: Yeah. Well, I think I, I do get, I don't know if I get that question posed to me a lot, but I have that conversation a lot. And usually people aren't asking me, uh you know, hey, why why don't I just go buy a house instead of investing in one of your deals? Usually what happens to me is I run into guys who are really into uh the real estate uh concept, the business model, the idea of it. Mm-hmm. And they're first and they're and they're a lot like me when I first started where they just want to do everything themselves so they can, you know, be the one in control and take all the credit. And they, they just really they just really want to do it. And you know, my advice to them is always the same. Like, you know, that's that's great. If you want to uh, do it on your own, uh, have at it. If you love it as much as I do, then, I, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way. But when it comes to deciding whether or not to be a partner in a large deal versus going out and getting, um, you know, a single family house or duplex or tri- triplex, my response is always just, well, you know, run the numbers and mm-hmm. see what's gonna make you more money and see what's got um, uh, less risk. And if you find a single family home that makes you more profits with less risk than a larger syndication, then by all means, go do it. You'd be dumb not to, but you know, nine times out of 10, or I'd say 9.8 times out of 10, uh, when you run the numbers, spreadsheets don't lie. You know, it's pretty black and white when you're doing math. It's, that's what I love about it is it's like the numbers just make sense. You're making more money and taking less risk when doing a larger deal. So, you know, but there's plenty of people out there that just really don't like the idea of uh, investing in apartments buildings. They'd rather just own a couple houses, and you know their goal isn't to make as much money as possible. They just kind of want to be a, like a landlord as, as, as a hobby. So you know, for those people, great, have at it. But if your goal is to create wealth and make as much money as possible and minimize your risk, then just run the numbers, and that'll that'll answer the question for you. That's mm-hmm. usually my response. The the key, key word.
0: A... Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, I think you bring up an interesting point, Dan, about the risk. And um, I would say that a lot of people look at single family housing as less of a risk because you know, like I said earlier, it is a familiar thing, but but the other thing that you said, and it if you if you look at the amount of money that you put into a single family house versus uh, a syndication, and then you look at the return on that, and I don't know too many single-family houses, unless you really buy right, that you can double your money in five years. It there there are the there are the deals out there. I'm not going to say that they don't exist, mm-hmm. but uh, being in a syndication, at least the ones that we try and buy, uh, underwrite out to where we, our our goal is to double an investor's money in five years.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly why I tell people to just do the math for themselves because, you know, uh, I could say it all day long and, you know, I kind of do, but at the same <laughs> time, I'm I'm a little biased because, you know, I invest in you do? these deals. Uh, but like I said, the math doesn't lie. So if someone does the math themselves and they see, "Oh, if I get this this house, it's, you know, uh, you know, if I, my underwriting's on point, um, you know, it says I'm going to make um, you know, 10% a year best case scenario." Um, and then there's a lot of you know, inherent risks there. You're relying entirely on uh, uh, market appreciation. You don't have the ability to really force appreciation uh, quite as well with uh, single family as you do with multifamily, which we'll get into maybe this episode, maybe next one. But mm-hmm. you know, when people do the math, the, the numbers almost always will point to um, you know, a syndication being a less risky and more profitable deal. Uh, unless there's that oddball situation where you just steal a house, you know, you just find some ridiculous deal, you know, 50 grand for something that's worth 200. Um, If you find something like that, I mean, by all means, take it really long. Um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that's at the same time, that's not really a scalable model either. If you're looking for these, these unicorn deals, what once every five, 10 years, you might find something, Mm
1: -hmm. you know, the the key word in all of this that you you've mentioned a couple of times there, Dan, and I want to really draw attention to it because I think it's actually the most important aspect of answering this question of should you be Risk. active? No, but that's gonna be I have a pen in my notes right here to come back to that one because it's also very important. It's it's the the idea of the goal. What is your desired outcome? What do you yeah. want to achieve? Right. When somebody comes and says, Hey, I want to get into real estate, I'm thinking about going to buy this single family house. The question to ask is why? Why do you want to get into this industry mm-hmm. and do that? Is it because you want to replace your day job, you want to leave it, you want to find another avenue, and you want a means to quickly accelerate your your uh, cash flow situation so that you mm-hmm. can start living a different life? Then that might be a really great option. Go go on the active side and, and and you can do that. But if you're if you love your job, if you aren't interested in being a landlord um and you like the idea of collecting cash flow, then it doesn't make sense to go out there and do it on your own. And so Dan, you pointed out like for you, your personality, it made a lot of sense. Like you love what you do. You're doing it full time. Like it makes a lot of sense for you. It wouldn't make sense for you to be a passive investor. Right. Whereas somebody else given their life situation, it's going to be completely the opposite. Perhaps like I have family. I want to spend my time with, I don't want to be dealing with all the stress and the rigmarole I have capital saved up in a 401k. I've been doing this for a while. I just want that money to go work for me so that it can, you know, start supplementing and building some generational wealth. So I think starting and understanding what's the desired
2: outcome and then working back from there and saying, is this the right path for me or is this the right path for me? Yeah. And that changes too. I've seen that um, in several people over the years where they start out uh, you know, really active in real estate. And then as they get older, they start gravitating towards, uh, becoming LPs because, you know, they've accumulated a good amount of wealth. They're not really concerned with, with, you know, trying to double or triple their money every, uh, every year, every two years at this point, they, they're more concerned with creating as much time in their life as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're perfectly happy with, you know, a Fifteen to twenty percent return every year, as opposed to going out and trying to make, you know, fifty percent doing everything themselves. And you know, so I've, I've seen a lot of people kind of change as they as they uh, age and priorities change.
0: So, mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of active investors end up down that path. You know, they they're mm-hmm. very active, and then they transition uh, as as they move along. So they yeah, can prepare, let like, the young bucks do it
2: who have all that exactly. energy going exactly. hunting for deals, walking around. Yeah, from.
1: because let's be let's be really clear here is like being on the active side is a lot of work. Like there's you're constantly grinding, going out there and, and trying to get new deals in the pipeline. When you have the deal in the pipeline, now you have to execute it. You have to get investors mm-hmm. on board, you have to do all the due diligence and get it across uh, the financing table. And so it's it's not easy. Like it it's a very particular personality. And by and large, I'd say the very entrepreneurial personality. If you're the type of person who doesn't work well for others or in an environment with like a lot of structure, then this yeah. can be a really great path for you. But cool, yeah. I wanted I put a pin in the risk conversation because we keep talking about low risk, low risk, mm-hmm. uh, in re- in reference to multifamily syndications, but at the same time we're also like single family is risky, blah blah blah. So let's really nail down because here on the graphic uh, we have on the general partner side, risk nine out of 10. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of risk, limited partner, one out of 10. Okay. And let's qualify this real quick. When we talk about risk in this context, we're comparing it against every other investment type, which is you always run the risk of losing your, your initial capital. That's always a risk. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's our baseline of zero beyond that risk that we're talking about here is um you know, accountability to the lender or you know to legal authorities if something goes wrong. So let's let's really break that up real quick. And mm-hmm. accountability to
0: your to your limited partners too. Yeah. Yeah, reputational risk. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's huge. So where do you want to start on that on that well, spectrum of risk? What let's let's compare the difference. Why why is a single family risky
1: compared to a multifamily? Why would the multifamily not be as risky for an LP specifically?
0: well i don't i don't hmm. i don't know if uh if it's less risky it's perceived as less risky but uh there is there is uh some management needs to go on there of course single family valuation is tied to tied to comps in the neighborhood so if uh and th- this is this is a huge part of the risk. Is if we look back, and and I know that you know right now we're in we're still in a in a in a bullish market, uh, even though uh, everybody thought that the market was going to change. You know, with the COVID, uh, right now things are t- showing to be pretty steady. Lenders have tightened their uh, standards up a little bit, but they're starting to loosen those up, and. Uh, if, if we look back at like 08, for example, when the housing market crashed, um, multifamily fared that whole thing really well. And, you know, in comparison to a lot of other asset classes, and uh, because it's tied to the NOI, it's not, it's not tied to, you know, how pretty your neighbor's house looks and, and what the one down the street sold. For the last month, so that's that's the, the the largest difference there in in the risk. I mean, if you have if you have risk in in how you're running the place, uh, there there's more moving parts when it comes to housing uh, uh, a an apartment building than there is a single family house. Uh, but there's risk associated on both of those. If you run either one poorly. Uh, it's they're going to have deferred maintenance, and you're going to start losing money because you're not going to be able to maintain tenants. Um, but as far as as far as risk and uh, what would you call it, steady, steady value, mm-hmm. multifamily is is just completely superior to a single-family house.
2: It, Anthony, could you uh, repeat the question again? I had someone walk in my office when unacceptable. That,
1: that yeah, thing. so so the question Sorry. right now, like, I want to I want to spend a little bit of time talking about risk specifically through the lens of a passive investor in a multifamily situation because we we've talked about how you if you wanted to go buy your own single family, there's higher risk involved in that than if you were mm-hmm. a passive investor, and I really want to nail down why that is and being very mm-hmm. clear of like this isn't you know there's very specific reasons why we could point to that.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, if you go and buy a house, um, let's say it's a $100,000 house and you go and put 20% down um, as a down payment, and this is gonna be an investment property, you're gonna rent it out and then something happens and you just screw the whole thing up. Um, you're out your 20 grand and then you also owe the bank, um, you know, whatever they can't get from the house. So you're on the hook for a hundred grand. Um, which is a lot of risk. You're putting up 20, but you're you know, you're 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 controlling a hundred thousand dollar asset. And if you drop that ball, you're you're the one that's gotta make it good. You sign the loan, you put your name Pick on there, the and, and they're gonna come after so. you. If you're an LP in a larger syndication deal, um, if the world explodes and the deal goes completely horribly, um, you could lose what you put in, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh the GP on the other side. Uh, on the other hand is kind of in this in the uh, same situation as that single family homeowner, right they're the ones who are kind of um, you know signing on to the loan for the bank so you know they might be putting in you know 5 10 15% of the the, the capital but they're taking essentially all the risk because you know on the last deal we did it was uh, an 80 20 split uh, between GPs and LPs we put in 200 LPs brought in the other 800 and, um, but we're on the hook for that $2 million loan. So we put in 200K, but theoretically we're risking about 200, uh, we're, we're risking about 2 million bucks, right? Because if the deal goes to hell, then banks come in after us, not the LPs. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big difference between the two. You know, as an LP, you could, if, if you invest with a bad operator and you do no due diligence and something goes completely horribly wrong, you could lose all your capital, but you're not going to be filing for bankruptcy uh, because banks mm-hmm. are trying to seize your assets, so that's a pretty big difference. And then I think I heard uh, Rodney mentioning it as well. When it comes to uh, the valuation piece, which is the piece which is huge, uh, you have control over the value, which is enormous. In the single-family home market, uh, if the value of the house goes up, great. If it goes down, that sucks, and you just have to kind of ride that wave. Which you know happened to you, Anthony. You had a it was either duplex or triplex, and you know luckily that wave went your direction. But you mentioned on that. It'd deal, gone the other way. You did. Yeah. It could have gone the other way, but you know, you made a, a decent amount of money pretty quick on it, but you're like, it just didn't really feel that great because it's like, you know, it didn't do much. It just happened mm-hmm. to be a good little chunk of the market there and it could have easily gone the other way and it's completely out of your hands. Whereas with the multifamily, you know, like Rodney said, uh, the value is based on the NOI and as you, as the business owner are controlling that you're, you know, Controlling the income by determining what the rents are and how effectively you market the property, and you're controlling the opex. So, you know your uh, your ability to to, to manage is going to directly influence the value of that property. Which is why, like you mentioned, uh, apartment buildings uh, did well in the real estate crash of 2008, mm-hmm. right? Because the value is based on the income, not on you know what Joe's house down the street sold for. So.
1: Yeah. And that's a really big topic. I think probably makes a lot of sense to tackle in one of the next segments, whether either next week or the week after, because we could spend an entire time talking about NOI expenses, revenue, and how we come to these building valuations and what leads to that stability that we'd like so much. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the other things then kind of moving from this then and back into the, um, the infographic is, is, um, the interplay between let me see if I can pull it back up here real quick. Here we go. The interplay between time and capital. It's kind of an inverse relationship here for the general mm-hmm. partners and the limited partners. The the general partners putting in all their time and their energy, the limited partners, there is work involved at the beginning, vetting and finding operators and then vetting the deals and educating yourself so that you understand like how do you know if it's a good deal or not? And so this one is a little bit low, like there is a little bit of time and energy, but once the deal is kicked off, you have that baseline education, you're good to go. And then as we talk about the capital, like this is where the big risk really comes in for limited partners. Like you're, you put your capital in and there's always a chance in any investment. There's no guarantee of returns, right? So there's always a chance you could lose your money, but you're not on the hook for more than that with the bank or another aspect of the risk that I really want to talk about is we're syndicating, which is a security um, under the guidance of the SEC. And so there's very strict guidelines. And as Rodney pointed out earlier with the joint venture, there's a big distinction between a syndication and a joint venture and what all that means. So let's, let's break that apart real quick and talk about why it's a security, why that's actually kind of a good thing for the limited partner, maybe not the best thing in the world for the general partner because it means more hoops to jump through, but ultimately Mm -hmm. it works out to be the best for the industry at at large.
2: Yeah, when it comes down to it, if there's someone who's doing work to produce profits for somebody else who's not doing the work, that's pretty much what's gonna make it a syndication. Um, A joint venture implies that everybody in the deal uh, shares, um, shares in the risk and shares in the management or the operations there, there, it implies that everyone in the deal's active to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of nuances there that you can probably try to finagle with if you want to try to get tricky, but you know, the, the bottom line, if there's someone who's doing the work to produce profits for somebody else, and they're relatively passive, that's really what's gonna differentiate things from a JV to a syndication.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, another huge um, difference between a JV is if, if the three of us bought a, a building together and we did a, a joint venture, we would all own 33 and a third percent of that building or however we uh, agreed to split it up. But the three of us would be on the deed, all three of mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. syndication on the other hand the deed is held by the the entity that is purchasing it and like you said Anthony that there are uh, shares uh, or units depending on how uh, they're defined that are sold to the passive investors and they buy the they're basically buying what's like a share in in that, entity that purchased that building. And they're, they have no say in the management. Uh, it's the responsibility of the operator to run it. And mm-hmm. they don't own, they don't participate in the ownership like they do in a, in a joint venture. And so that's the big distinct, this distinction is, is like you brought up, Dan, is the level of involvement. Uh, but from a legal standpoint, uh, a JV is a part owner, whereas in a syndication, uh, it's all the general partners that are that are named on the the entity that purchased it, and all the LPS are uh, just bringing the capital and buying, you know, quote unquote shares. They're not shares, but a lot of people call them units. Yeah, that's. I'm really glad you
1: segued into that direction because there, there's some nuances there that we hadn't really addressed yet. Which is when we go into the syndication as a limited partner, you're not actually buying. You don't, you don't own the building, right? You own the L, you own shares of the LLC that owns the building. And the really big nuance there then is that the general partner has all the control. They're making the day-to-day decisions about how to operate the building, um, and and when to buy or when to sell it. And there might be some clauses in the contract that give you voting rights or some levels of control. but By and large, your control is going to be very low as a limited partner. And the general partner is going to have all the control. And this is a good thing, actually. If you think about it, you don't want really liberal voting control in one of these syndications. And the reason is you spend all your time vetting the operators that you want to work with. So if you decide I want to work with Rodney, you're going to spend a lot of time vetting Rodney. You might do a background check on him. You might talk to some other professional referrals, his investors that he's done deals with and say, okay, I trust Rodney and his expertise. And that's what you're going into the deal with. Now, if all the limited partners in the deal have voting control, then suddenly all these other, maybe 20, 30 other investors that you don't know And that maybe aren't industry professionals have the ability to make a decision that impacts your investment that's not necessarily a good thing right so you you are really when you come into these deals you are putting a big vote of confidence into the general partner that you elect to work with and so the the vetting process is super critical
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i think kind of tying that back to the risk conversation we're having uh on the infographic there we had a little number one As far as time that the LP puts in, Mm -hmm. that's that little number one is basically you vetting the operator and vetting uh, the deal. And that little one, as far as time, is where you can effectively reduce your risk substantially. I mean, that's where the risk is. You either vet your operator in the deal and you reduce your risk down to, you know, pretty much nothing, or you just find someone, you know, they, you know, maybe you follow them online. They seem really cool, and you just jump right in. You don't read the docs. You don't, you don't uh, check references or anything like that. You just jump in. That that's really where your risk is as an LP is if you don't um, do your homework on the operator and do your homework on the deal. So,
1: absolutely. The, um, this the strikes me now is that the risk itself is almost never in the deal inherently. It's always in the operator because. A good yeah. operator can take a mild, like a moderate deal, and make it great. They can hit, They can do great things with it. But or a bad operator, deal. right? Yeah, it can even take a crappy deal and make it yeah. pretty good, probably. Yeah. Where like a bad operator is going to ruin a great deal. So the risk mm-hmm. isn't really in the deal itself; it's in the operator you're choosing to work with. And so it's yeah. just, it's hard to put it into uh, overstating just how important it is to make sure that you're getting into bed with the right operators because. Uh, these deals last anywhere between three and seven years on average. That's a long Mm -hmm. time to be stuck in a relationship with somebody that after six months, you realize, uh Oh, I don't, I don't like the way this person operates. I don't trust them anymore, or they're not communicating clearly with me. You're going to be in for a really long, long investment.
0: Yeah, because this, this is an illiquid investment. It's not like buying stocks where Mm -hmm. if all of a sudden you read that, uh, you know, Apple is Is uh, gonna quit making iPhones and they're gonna change the name to ePhones and it just irritates you. So you're gonna sell all your Apple stock. Um, It doesn't work that way. (laughs) There, there are some clauses in there where uh, you might be able to sell out, but as a general rule, it's an illiquid investment. And so, you know, to your point, you're gonna be there until until the property sells. So knowing your operator. Is super important and uh and being comfortable with the way that they run their business and then underwriting the deal uh so that you understand uh with the business plan that the operator is proposing.
2: And also mm-hmm. just have a uh, you know, spend a few hundred bucks um and have a lawyer take a look at the um, uh, the private placement memorandum because that's a pretty mm-hmm. comprehensive doc that gets signed when you get into these deals. So um, I think it's well worth it to drop a little bit of money to have someone who's 100 percent on your side tell you whether or not the the deal is structured in a way where um, you know you're protected. Make sure there's nothing crazy going on in there because those are you know 30, 40, 50 page documents. Um, and even if you do read the whole thing, it's a lot of legal jargon. So it'd be very wise for limited partners, especially new ones, who are getting into the stuff for the first time, to um, you know have a professional, have a, a, an attorney take a look at those documents. Just make sure there's nothing weird in mm-hmm. there. Saying, I don't know, you you never know what someone might put in there. You I mean usually these deals are pretty pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, an example of something that might be in there that you really uh, could maybe take you by surprise is the capital calls, right? And mandatory capital yeah. calls where if you're not paying attention for it, the operator could slip it into the, and we're getting really high level. And I think this is probably warrants diving into on its own. And like the team members yeah, that you have. A bit
0: on that. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't but, talk about what a PPM was.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. But for, for, for instance, yeah, so maybe let's just leave it there. Um, but just know that there, there can be really disadvantageous clauses within that PPM. And we can talk about what some of those specifically are in one of the coming episodes in the next couple of weeks. Cause I think we could dive deep into it.
2: Yeah. I think the the bottom line for people watching this is basically um, the most important thing is to vet the operator, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and vet the deal secondarily, Vet the operator, that's, that's really your big thing. Make sure you're yep. working with a, a good group and then to make sure the deal fits your investment parameters. And then last but not least. And actually when we were talking to our syndication attorney, he said, um, you know, the, what was it? The PPM was like the least important piece, right? The operators really yeah. worry. And that was our syndication attorney telling us that the, the PPM was like the last thing you should worry about. Like the operator is the big thing. Make sure that person is uh, gonna be a good fit for you. And just to clarify for
1: people, the PPM is called the private placement memorandum. It is the big legal document that everybody is going to sign to make sure that we're all on the same page going into this investment. So. It's, it's laying out the rules. And so that's when we're saying PPM, that's what we're talking about. But yeah, that was actually really surprising. Like our syndication lawyer, we, we threw him a softball. We said, what's the most important thing to, for a passive investor to be aware of and pay attention to. And we thought he was going to say for sure the PPM. And instead he's like, you need to vet your operator. You need to make sure that you're, you, you know, like, and trust them and that you're committed to that. I like that answer
2: though. Well, was the right answer, right? <laughs> it's the right answer and I just I just wasn't I mean Didn't I, I don't think the PPM answer would have been incorrect necessarily mm-hmm. but I, it was nice to hear him say that. So. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, right, I mean so-
0: it's it's a document that that the investor should absolutely be aware of and should definitely uh, go over and have his attorney look at it like you were saying Dan. I mean it's we don't want to we don't want to dismiss that but yeah, mm-hmm. the the importance in and making this whole thing work is it works is, is the operator. I mean, if the operator yeah. is not uh, doing a good job, the PPM can say all kinds of great things. And it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't do anything for you. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. I think either uh, Zach, our lawyer, or Anthony said it. I can't remember which one. But um, the PPM is basically like the rules of the game. And um, just because they're there doesn't mean that the operator is going to follow them. Right. So even if you've got a really great PPM with like everything structured perfectly for the limited partner, if you're with a shady dude, doesn't matter. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it may give you some legal ground to stand on, but at, yeah, you don't want to get to that point though. You're still assuming risk. I mean, it is, it's a, it's an investment. Hmm. And, and uh, the PPM should spell out that, that this is risk capital that you should be able to be in a position to lose it all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah definitely don't don't person. bet the house on it yeah <laughs>
2: exactly. so it let's let's no
1: no nah, nah. <laughs> all right so let's let's talk about the last aspects i think for this evening is and, and one of the reasons that we like multifamily oh, best part it is the best part so let's talk about this why do we have profit. it as three for general partners and seven for limited partners let's really dive into the the profit side because that's at the end of the day that's what we're all here for right like we're investing our money to put it to work for us, and we, we want it to earn a good return.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the um, uh, the capital um, row or whatever you want to call it there. Um, there you go. I got, the, I got this. You know, thank you. Yep. I, if I point <laughs> at it, no one can tell on the video. So, um, you know, if you look at the capital chunk there, you know, the limited partners are putting in the majority of the capital. So it makes sense that they'd be pulling out the majority of the profits, right? Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Um, So, uh, but yeah, I mean, like I mentioned before, on our last deal, we had an 80 20 split uh, with our uh, LPs on the last deal. So we put Mm -hmm. in 20% of the capital, did all the work. They put in 80% and that split was uh, consistent, Uh, but different groups and different deals are going to be structured differently all the time. I've seen, uh 2575, i have seen 7030. Hell, there's probably 50-50 splits
0: out there. Um there actually are 50-50 splits. Yeah, yeah.
2: probably Green Cardone. <laughs> yeah. I'll gotta mention one. Yeah, we almost made it he, through, he, man. He didn't a...
1: make it through, did he? This is almost a full hour. It was crazy. <laughs> I was like, man, we're gonna get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this this seven and this three is it's just reflective of one of the most common splits when you look at syndications, which is the 70-30. As Dan pointed out on our last deal, we did an 80 20. So that was even more favorable towards the, the limited partners. Uh, but We're really nice guys, guys. We are really nice guys. I'm glad. It that- is a really good deal. So it's just a lot of money. There's there enough meat on the bone. So yeah. it didn't it didn't matter.
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> we normally run a 70 30 split mm-hmm. uh, for our deals. Okay. Uh, although the last deal, we ran a 25 75 split. Uh, it, and we did that because the we just felt like the the returns were not there for the investor, and so we reduced our our side of it to give more profits uh, to the investors.
2: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's something you want to be on the lookout for as a passive investor is is that type of mindset from the operator. Um, when you see guys like Rodney who have the uh, the long game in mind and they're not trying to make as much money as possible today, they're more so trying to build a successful business for the long term and they're okay making less on this deal, giving more money to the investors for you know the longevity of the business and, and creating wealth for people. Like that's, that's a big red flag that you're working with a good operator when you see that type of stuff. So red flag. That's a good flag. What's the good flag? A good uh, green one. He green. Doesn't, Dan doesn't do sports, but uh <laughs> I
0: know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, my I flags. Think, wait a minute. It, it was it, really sounding good there, and then you said red. <laughs> I mean, it's it He juked us. I was like, whoa, red flag.
2: <laughs> red can be good, right? I mean not Usually. Christmas? I mean I
1: Valentine's Day, maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> anyways. The color of passion. Uh, okay, so last thing that we didn't touch on here, and we can hit it real quickly from a high level are the tax benefits and this is actually one of the only good stuff this one's interesting because it's the only one on this entire sheet where the general partners and the limited partners both get like very high marks simultaneously usually one is getting a high mark the other is getting a lower mark um but here it's both nine out of ten both both parties get to benefit from
0: all the the tax breaks yeah there is this wonderful thing uh, called uh, cost segregation and uh, it's where the government has allowed us to accelerate depreciation on certain aspects of the property. And uh, when when we buy a property, we, we bring a cost segregation company in like Madison Specs or um, any of the other ones that are, operate out there. And they come in with a team of engineers and look at uh, all of uh, the different parts of the building. And, and we're, uh, the government has, has structured uh, the tax schedule so that we can accelerate depreciation on a lot of those components and recapture a lot of that uh, depreciation upfront.
2: Hey Rodney, what's what's depreciation? No, no, I got my I got my idiot hand oh, up. I sorry,
1: have, what's depreciation? <laughs> <laughs> we, take it for, we take it for granted because we we live and we breathe this world. Um, yeah. But to the general person that's never heard of this stuff, depreciation is like, well, I have
0: no clue what that is. Well, uh, unless unless uh, well, Dan, you probably have a better explanation. Now, I can uh, I can try and explain it because I, I know what it is. Yeah, uh, and I can do you know, it. I've, I know I, that, uh, you know, that. I've done it a handful of times, so I could rattle it exactly. off. So I think Dan's going to be a better person to explain this than than me. So you go for it. All right, here we go. So I think most people have heard of
2: depreciation uh, when they are talking about like cars or something. Right. We know that as soon as we drive our car off the lot, when we buy it, it loses value instantaneously. Right. Um, and uh, essentially depreciation is the opposite of appreciation which we've talked about a bunch here, it's the value going up. So as something loses value over time, that means it's depreciating. And typically- um, It sounds like uh, a bad happens. thing. You, you'd think, you'd think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the logic is the building's gonna wear out over time, right? And um, the, the, the IRS wants to compensate uh, investors for that theoretical loss of value over time. Um, So by default, apartment buildings are going to be depreciated over 27 and a half years. So what that means is every year uh, you take the value of your building less the value of the land um, and divide it up, divide it by 27.5. And every year you get to deduct whatever that number is off of your taxable income uh, because theoretically your building lost that much value that year through depreciation. So it's like an expense that you get to write off, except you never have to write a check to anybody. No money goes out the door. It's just a theoretical, it's called a phantom expense. So it's an expense that only shows up on your taxes, right? You never pay anybody for it, but when you file your taxes, oh look, this expense line item goes here and it knocks down my taxable income. Um, And then like Ronnie was saying there's something called accelerated depreciation. So instead of taking that value of your building, dividing up over 27 and a half years, you get to take all these components in your building and and have them depreciated at a quicker rate because your stoves aren't gonna last 27 and a half years, your windows aren't, your carpet's not, that stuff's all gonna wear out at, at uh, they, have, they all those things have different lifespans on them basically. So what these cost segregation specialists do is they come in and they they take all the components of the building and they throw them into these various buckets. Uh, like, I think it's like what, one year, five years, seven years, 10 years, 15, 27 and a half. Mm-hmm. And, and they say, okay, you know, these, all these appliances, they're good for five years, so we'll put the value of those in this bucket. And then what happens is that value of the building gets scrunched up into the first part of the life cycle, usually the first few years. And all of a sudden that depreciation expense line item gets really big. Uh, so all of a sudden your taxable income gets really small. So even though we are, you know, buying assets where we can go in and fix them up and make them appreciate, they're simultaneously depreciating on your taxes. So the value is increasing, but when it comes time to, to pay your taxes, Oh, we just lost a ton of money. Summer. So it's it's a, it's a it's, a, it's not a loophole, it's just one big giant incentive that the IRS has created because they want people to invest in real estate. You're creating housing for people who don't have the ability or the desire to go out and buy a house, which is extremely valuable to society. Mm-hmm. So when the government wants you to do something, what do they do? They give you a tax credit or some sort of tax incentive to, to make you do things that, that benefit uh, society and, and the country. So. Mm-hmm.
1: That was a fantastic explanation
2: and we're done all right guys
1: that's everything (laughs) cool i think hopefully that makes sense
2: we should i think we should throw in some links to maybe some other videos that we've done where we've gone in yeah into a deep dive on some of these things we've done depreciation we've done um a lot of stuff we've talked about so i think we should throw some links into this yeah because
0: uh there we didn't really get into uh cost segregation and uh we don't have to explain how the whole thing works but the passive investor I think definitely system. wants to know about about cost segregation because that is a, a great thing i was trying to find uh where i have an example of um i got a video that i did on it so yeah we can link yep we'll link that in the show notes
1: yeah, I don't have anything really to add on to the tax side of the conversation um, from a high level. I think you did a good job of explaining that for the general. Just know as a passive investor, the tax benefits can be passed on to you as well. So the money that you're earning every year in the form of cash flow distributions, which we'll talk about that in a later episode and like all the ways that you can get paid. Well, that can be that's going to be offset then by the depreciation. So you're not going to necessarily be paying as much or maybe any taxes on that. And then we could get to some nuances too, if you're a real estate professional and how you could even offset other earned income from other sources. So,
2: yeah. Yeah. I think it, one last thing to tie the bow on the, on the tax piece is that that's really the thing that separates investing in real estate from a lot of other things, because, you know, if you're making 15 to 20% in a syndication, um, you know, that's, that's good. That's great. You don't want to, you don't want to discount that, but uh, a lot of people will say, Oh, you know, on average, the S and P goes up, you know, 12, maybe 15% a year over a long enough time horizon. Right. But then you factor in taxes. Okay. You're mm-hmm. going to pay, you paying capital gains taxes on any profits you make invest in the market. However, on syndication, we've got that little depreciation thing sweep uh, slipping in there. So let's say you invested hundred grand into a deal and uh over the course of a year, you, we sent you cash flow checks that totaled twenty grand, right? At the end of the year, you get a tax doc that says, "Oh, um, once we factor in depreciation, um, you actually only made ten grand, right?" So you're only going to get taxed on half of it. So you're, you know, once you factor the taxes in, it's just it's no contest between yep. anything else, unless Rapid. you're drilling for oil. That's like the only other thing that can. can
0: <laughs> so I can share with you. I did find this and. Uh, this particular individual, and, and this form is redacted, so you're not going to be able to see who it is. But uh, this is, is their the K, K. This is their yeah. K one uh, for a hundred thousand dollar investment, and this is their first K one after we did the cost segregation. And this person was able to write off on a hundred thousand dollar investment seventy seven thousand. 865 dollars so so how much did they get paid out in cash flow that year uh, this so this uh, individual here this was uh, this property was purchased in December and uh, as long as you have the cost segregation everything done prior to uh, taxes which is March 15th then all of that uh, gets counted in the prior tax year for, for this one. So this individual has not received a disbursement yet.
2: Mm, okay.
0: and, and uh, But just because of the cost segregation, he has a 77800 that he can apply towards his income to offset any income he has. And if you don't use it, of course, you can carry it over to the next year.
2: So that's basically seventy-seven thousand uh, dollars of taxes. That's basically, you know, I don't know when, how, how long it's going to take him to make seventy-seven grand in your deal. If you invest hundred grand, maybe you know, three years or something. Yeah. Um, basically, he's he's not going to have to pay taxes on stuff. Now, obviously, we should preface this: none of us are CPAs. If you have any questions about your specific tax situation, I always talk to your own CPA. But just to illustrate the concept um uh i mean this is this is what separates real estate from everything else is mm-hmm. being able to make money and then
0: when you go and file
2: your taxes have it say that you lost money and thus yes. not have to pay income tax on stuff so if if Great. you
0: offset that with a like the first 3 years of returns depending on what they are mm-hmm. i mean at this point he's not going to make any money theoretically until third year Mm -hmm. Uh, but i'm glad you did mention about the cpa because we definitely want to make sure that we're clear on that that um you need to uh and your tax consultant is the one that you need to be talking to not us Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yeah just like just like many of the legal stuff you need to consult your attorney on that yeah well.
2: we'll talk to you about the profits uh your cpa could talk to you about the taxes that's a good deal
1: exactly yeah and just to clear our uh, cover our bases, because you did mention Grant Cardone uh, hashtag please don't sue us. So you know I feel like right, if we're you gonna did go. sue
2: us that'd be really great marketing. So I
1: would love it. I'd be yeah. I'd be super cool.
2: Let it happen.
1: <laughs> All right, guys. So this is uh, I think a good place to kind of wrap it up. This was a good conversation for starting um, for the beginners guide to getting into passive investing and in, in apartment syndications. Next week and the week after, we're, this is going to be a three-part series where we just keep diving deeper and deeper into some of these concepts and, and flush them out a bit more. Uh, but I, just to kind of wet your whistle for next week, I think we're going to talk about how the value-add model actually works, why it's so powerful, and how you can make, uh, how you can add millions of dollars of value to a property in the span of just a couple years. And, once you see how those numbers really work, it becomes a light bulb moment where you go,
0: Whoa, this is very, very mm-hmm. powerful. So, that's this is, that. this is one of my favorite parts is the, is, is the accelerated appreciation or forced appreciation. It's it's can't wait till next week. It's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it's really hard to over overstate it. It's like once you learn about it, it's it's hard to like look at anything else and be like, Why would you do that? <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is yeah. one of the, this is one of the things that just totally sold me on on multifamily.
1: Yep. Cool. So for you guys at home, uh, make sure you tune in next week for that. Before you go, do us a favor: leave a review, hit the subscribe button, leave a like. Just to start push, pushing buttons, as Dan likes to say. Uh, give us some feedback. And help the algorithms. The help. The... And hit the oh, bell. Hit the bell. The bell. Oh, yeah, yeah, hit that bell. Ding the bell. Hit the um, bell. And
0: uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Later, guys. Thank you for listening to the weekly multifamily roundtable, where each week we bring you guests from every aspect of the multifamily industry. Be sure to join us next week and recommend our show to someone else. We would also like to ask you to head over to iTunes or Google podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This will help move the show up the ranks. If you would like more information about what we are doing and how you can partner with us, Contact Dan and Anthony at Invictus dot com or Rodney at SolarisCM.com